Hey everyone, I'm Andrea Ferretti, and this is episode four of our summer series. Okay, so we've talked about ideas for staying on your mat. We've talked about the hips and some things that you may be overlooking in your hip focus practices. We've talked about the shoulders and understanding, you know, this dynamic and complex joint. Today, we're going to talk about the spine. So we're slowly piecing together a body for you. (laughs) But it is kind of helpful to think about things this way. And Jason on this episode offers three very simple tips for working your spine in a balanced way in your vinyasa yoga practice. Before we get to the interview, I want to talk about a little project I'm starting on Instagram, and I hope you will join in. Every week I get really wonderful emails from some of you out there and it made me think that it would just be wonderful to share some of this stuff with the community a little more. So here's my idea for how to do that. Every week I'm going to ask you to tell a yoga story. And so this week the story is, I first went to yoga because, and then you fill in the blank, I stayed practicing yoga because, and then you can tell your story about what kept you practicing yoga after that initial first visit. What really hooked you and what was that moment? Post a photo of yourself on Instagram. It has to be a photo of you. doesn't have to be a yoga photo, but it can be. Tell that story and then use the hashtag YogalandStories. And then at the end of the week, I will pick a story and feature it on Jason's feed and on my feed. And then we can just start to all get to know each other a little bit better. I just think that would be really cool. So hashtag YogalandStories. I first went to yoga because fill in the blank. And then what hooked me or what kept me going back to yoga was fill in the blank. Also, I just want to encourage you to listen all the way to the end of this episode because I offer my tip and approach for quitting sugar and reducing sweeteners in your life. Enjoy this week's episode, and next week we'll be back with an episode about the core. Hey, Jason. Hey, Andrea. Here we are. We're at episode four of our six-part summer series. Yes, we are. Thanks for doing this with me. My pleasure. So today we're going to talk about the spine. La spine. Kind of an important part of the body. Yeah, it's a big deal. (laughs) (laughs) It's a sort of big deal. All right. So what's your thinking on spine today? My thinking is really similar to the hips and the shoulders from previous podcasts, which is just take a step back to look at the sequence that we are working with or the sequencing that we're working with and to ask ourselves whether or not we are creating a balanced experience for the spine. Now, the truth is it's difficult to talk about spine without talking about the core, but we're going to save the core for another episode. So I might have to make a little reference to core here in spine conversation and then pick up more later on in the next conversation about core. Okay. Okay. So here's the deal. And I also want this to be user-friendly. I don't want this to just be sort of too nerdy about what I observe about spine in contemporary practice. But I want to start with this. When I step back and I look at the way that we typically use spine in vinyasa-based sequences, I still find that we are much more oriented towards forward bending and engaging the muscles on the front side compared to back bending or twisting or side bending. Now, this a little bit makes sense. 
because when you do vinyasa based yoga, you route things through Surya Namaskar very often. But if you count up in one sun salutation, you have five forward bends for every one back bend. So let me do that math for you. You're standing in Tadasana, you inhale, reach the arms up, you exhale, forward bend. That's one. Then you lift halfway up, that's Ardha Uttanasana. Really? That's two. Then on the exhale, you step or hop back, Chaturanga, up dog. That's your one back bend. So now you have a two to one ratio. Then you go to down dog. That's a third forward bend. And then you route back through that same process. So every Surya Namaskar is five forward bends to one back bend. Now let's say you do 10 Surya Namaskars. That's a 50 to 10 ratio. All right? Yes. Are you following me? Do you, you totally see the impact you. of this? I kind of think it's so cute that, that you've thought about this. Okay, but no, think about it. Think about it. Flip it around. Let's say I go to the gym and I do... 50 bicep curls for every 10 tricep presses I do. Does that make any sense? It actually doesn't make any sense. And then let's not just say that I do that once in a while. Let's say I'm an avid yoga practitioner and I do this four or five, six days a week multiplied over a lifespan. So what we really have to do is step back and we have to look at saying, okay, this thing that I'm doing now is not just about now. It's related to how often I'm going to do this for how long. Now, I want to do my practice as long as I can, which means I have to have a greater balance in numbers sooner, not later. Right? Yeah. Okay. So here's the first tip, which is in your sun salutations, make sure in Ardha Uttanasana, that inhale lift halfway up, that you come actually halfway up. Come high enough up that your spine moves into extension. And so oftentimes what's happening is people will, you know, they'll do the forward bend. They'll inhale, lift halfway up, but they won't actually lift halfway up because their hamstrings are too tight. Think about Ardha Uttanasana. Ardha means half. So half of your Uttanasana. So if I am pressed against my shins in Uttanasana, then half of that Uttanasana means I'm coming up at minimum. So my torso, my entire torso is parallel to the floor. If my Uttanasana is not pressed against my shins, which it's not, then I need to be coming up so my torso is higher than my pelvis. Arda is half, not a fraction of. So for me, this is the number one tip all the Ardha Uttanasanas lift high enough that your entire spine comes into a light spinal extension, a backbend. This is going to tie in really well to the hamstring conversation we had earlier in the hips conversation that we had, where I said that we overstretch the hamstrings relative to how much we contract them. In Ardha Uttanasana, when you lift halfway up, when you come all the way into extension, then you are strengthening your hamstrings, not just stretching them. But you do have to make sure you're not overly anteriorly tilting the pelvis while you do that, right? Not overly, no, but you should. I believe that it should feel like locust, that you want to come up until the spine is in a mild backbend. And the hamstrings are slightly engaged. Yeah. The hamstrings are strongly what, engaged. I, that's why I'm just yeah. I'm just clarifying that because yeah. for someone like me who who is, has exceedingly flexible hamstrings, I didn't know to engage 
my hamstrings in a forward bend? Well, your hamstrings will engage if you lift the spine and the pelvis high enough. They will engage. They can't not. It's like doing a deadlift. They can't not. It's not going to be to the same degree of doing like a hamstring curl, but it's going to be an isometric, eccentric contraction of the hamstrings if you lift high enough. Okay. I would say that for people who are just really hypermobile, they would be able to get a little extension in their spine and perhaps not get that engagement. It's a cue that you should think about. Fair enough. So I think that the the main emphasis I want to stick with this conversation is to make sure that you're lifting your torso high enough that you feel your spinal extensors engage, Okay. your back muscles engage. Okay. And it is likely that when you do that, there will be some mild hamstring engagement. And if there is, great. If there isn't, it's not a problem because it wasn't going to be that way anyways. When you lift high enough, the nice thing about this is that you're strengthening spine. So this is taking us back to this conversation that that we're really is really showing up for both of us now that we're solidly entrenched in our 40s, right? Which is we can't really take strength and conditioning for granted. And in vinyasa based yoga, there's so much stretching, there's so much pulling on the back side of the body and on certain regions of the body. That do we want to stop that stretching? I, I don't want to stop it. But that means it's incumbent upon me to do the technical work that is also strengthening and stabilizing those tissues. So since you're already doing Surya Namaskar, make sure in each Ardha Uttanasana that you're coming high enough that the spine goes into a little bit of extension. For all the people that I work with, for all the people that I train, I can't tell you the amount of especially really flexible women that I work with, that this is a huge light bulb that goes off for keeping their back body, their posterior chain a little bit more engaged. As much as I advocate for locust and prone back bends, we're still not going to do that much of them in a flow. But how many times do you do Ardha Uttanasana in a flow if you're routing everything through Surya Namaskar? To me, this is like, it's the lowest hanging fruit. It is a total no-brainer. And it is so good for bringing strength and tone to the backside. Cool. Big time. All right. Yeah. Great. Yeah. Tip number two, having to do with rotation. Now, we'll talk a little bit about this when it comes to core. Like I said, I have to have some reference for core and we work with spine because they run together so intimately. But one of the things that I've been liking doing in especially twisting lunging poses is hovering. Let's say I'm doing a, a crescent lunge twist to the right. So revolved side angle pose to the right. My right leg's forward, my left leg's back. My hands are in prayer. I'm taking my left elbow to my right knee. One of the things that I've been doing a lot lately is hovering the elbow above the knee for a couple of breaths before the elbow comes in contact with the knee. And what that is requiring and what that's doing is that's obviously going to engage my leg and hip muscles more. It's also engaging and therefore strengthening the rotational muscles of core and the rotational muscles of spine. When you go straight elbow to knee, now I, that's not, there's nothing wrong with just going elbow to knee and, and engaging core and twisting from there. But what I find with myself and my students is that if I hover the elbow a little bit above the knee for a breath or two, it requires all of those rotational muscles of core 
and the rotational muscles of spine to engage. So we're really starting to get the multifidus to fire and we're getting the obliques to fire. And that is a really good thing. We'll talk when it comes to core strength that to me, the most important aspect of core strength is rotational strength. That when the body is really looking for power, it has to rotate. The human body doesn't get power in a single plane ever. It gets power in rotational planes. And so we want to make sure that the rotational muscles of core, and in this conversation, the rotational muscles of spine are really awake. Cool. Yeah, I like that one. Yeah. I find it works really, really well. And I think I first got this from a class that I did with Catherine Budig on Yoga Glow. And I don't even know if this is what she was thinking of, but it worked out that way. It was in, she was doing it with Parivrita Utkatasana. Oh. And just sort of going back and forth. And it, it worked really well. And so I started to adapt that. And I thought about it first in the context of abdominal core, but then I started to realize how truly valuable this was for spine. Yeah for getting that fired up. Absolutely. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I can feel the burn as I, as I, <laughs> just as I think about it. <laughs> oh, I'm so glad I made you laugh. <laughs> I'm an easy target. You know, I think you're really funny. <laughs> yeah. It's still, a, it's still a great pleasure to make you laugh though. Good. It's like making my mom laugh. Yeah. Just never, never gets old. Good. <laughs> Tip number three, more face down back bends. My students that are listening to this are going to be so annoyed. I tell everyone that you can graduate from my 100 and 200 hour programs if you just use the word locust pose. Like the answer <laughs> to every question. The, the answer is locust pose, <laughs> but it's so important. More face down back bends. I know that what I wanted from my back bends for so long was a lot of motion. I wanted big, open, spacious backbends. And I still want them. And, and I, you know, my back, I'm, I'm totally content with my backbends. But more and more, I see how important spinal strength is, right? People talk all the time about, well, abdominal strength, core strength is so important. The abs, ab strength is so important to help protect the spine. Well, that's sort of true. But Spinal strength is also really important <laughs> to help protect the spine. Yeah. You know, and in part, because we sit in chairs and we're rounded forward, okay, people talk all the time about the shoulders, the front of the hips, the tightness on the front of the chest, heart, and lungs. Totally legit. But we, in the same breath, we need to talk about the problem of all the weakness of the back. Absolutely. Oh my weak, gosh. Weak, so weak, true. weak, weak hamstrings, weak glutes. Plus weak. anatomically, women carry around the weight of their breasts, you know, right, which really right, right. adds a lot of strain, can add a lot of strain sure. to the back. So doing more face down prone back bends is really just so integral. They're, they're so valuable. And we've talked in other podcasts so far in the series about saving the shoulders and creating greater strength in the back body by, in your sun salutations, to taking a few chaturanga up dogs off 
and doing locust, doing cobra. So whether you're including these in the flow of salutations or you make sure that you prioritized, you know, three or four locust poses followed by three or four cobra poses somewhere towards the backbending sequence is really important. Now, I think that they're a hard sell. I remember how much when I was new to yoga, I hated face down backbends because you can't breathe. They're really hard to breathe in. And you work really hard and you don't, and go, you don't go far. far. But that's the value, mm -hmm. right? It took me 20 years to actually understand that's why they're valuable. Is because you work hard. Think of those poses the way a Pilates teacher would. Or, totally. or as though you were in a Pilates class, right? They, that's right. They focus so much on the small movements and you get so strong. That's right. Even if you're thinking, no, I want the big motion. I want that chest, heart, lung to be so open that everyone on this block knows I'm the most pious yogi that's ever walked <laughs> the planet or whatever it is, whatever our, our sort of orientation is. Even if all we want are these big old backbends, well, there needs to be strength on the backside to support those joints and to help distribute the stress so that the stress of the backbend isn't accumulating too much in one segment of the spine. We spoke in a previous podcast about cohesiveness. Now, in that context, we were talking about the cohesiveness of the upper arm and the scapula, but we want to, in this context, think about the cohesiveness of the top of the sacrum, the lumbar spine, where the lumbar spine and the rib cage connect, all the way up through the thoracic spine and into the neck. We want a cohesive feeling of engagement along that whole posterior chain. And we need to spread out the stress. The spine doesn't want too much motion to come from just one place because that creates vulnerability in that one place. And so having a stronger muscle group helps distribute the stress of the deeper backbends better. Yeah, yeah. I know this is a little off topic, but I'm just curious because I think a lot of people get a little bit of satisfaction in prone backbends if they go a little deeper, let's say into like Dhanurasana. Sure. How do you feel about that pose? I think Dhanurasana is a great pose, although I'm loath to do it. Me too. It's, a, it's really rough yeah. for me. But some people, I think it feels great. Oh, totally. Mm -hmm. So I think Dhanurasana, in terms of pure strengthening, Dhanurasana is probably not a, for the spine, probably not as perfect as a locust. Because you're using your arms and legs to also leverage the backbend. But you are engaging the paraspinal muscles and you are lifting up against gravity. So yes, that's why I sort of started this by saying more prone backbends. Mm -hmm. More face down backbends is, are really good for back body strength. And again, in Dhanurasana, if you take person X's Dhanurasana and you compare person X's Urdhva Dhanurasana, they're not going to go as far as Dhanurasana, in Dhanurasana. Dhanurasana still, even for people with good mobility, it's still going to be harder. It's going to be harder work and you're not going to go as far. And that's the point. Mm -hmm. And that isn't to say that we shouldn't be afraid of doing the bigger poses. Mm -hmm. But bigger poses and greater mobility without sufficient strength to distribute the stress at some point becomes a liability. Yeah, you need that support. Yeah, big time. Yeah. The last tip, the last tip, which is most of those have actually focused on back strength. Now, the last tip is stop 
trying to make the spine so straight in your forward bends. People are over-straightening the spine in forward bends. They're not allowing the spine to round or flex at all. And this does two things. This keeps the muscles of the deep muscles of the back body tight because they're never flexing. And then the other thing that this does is it eventually pulls too much on hamstring attachments. Yeah, sure does. Right? Mm -hmm. Now, the difficulty is people with highly limited forward bends should be focusing on straightening the spine. If when you do a forward bend, if you can't even get your pelvis upright, if you can't get the sacrum perpendicular to the floor, if you can at maximum get your pelvis 90 degrees to the thighs, then you got no business rounding forward. Because when you round the spine even a little bit, it's going to tilt the pelvis back, right? Yep. But for people like you, or even people like me in forward bends, who's... You. Yes. <laughs> when the pelvis rotates forward over the femurs... So that the angle of the sacrum is rotated past that 90 degree angle, then at some point, and really the way I qualify it is, you want about a, about a child's pose amount of spinal rounding, right? I'm not saying a cat pose. I'm not saying, you know, blow the spine back, but I'm saying I see so many people who have these deep forward bends who keep trying to straighten their spine out more and more and more and more and more in that it's really feeding into the psychology of never enough but like if your body is against your legs like take a break <laughs> you know what i mean like then start working on the if you want things to be difficult start to work on the leg behind the head poses that's why we have harder poses but when you really max out when you really max out so that your torso is close to your legs then let there be a little bit of a child's pose-like feeling to the body. When I teach this in class or in my trainings, I show people me doing child's pose with my spine straight, my shoulders off the ground, my head off the ground. I say, do you think like this is a good child's pose? And they're like, no, no, of course, it's terrible. I say, why? My spine's straight. And they're like, well, yeah, but it's not restful. It's not calming. It's not soothing. And so then I do the same thing in Pachamotanasana. I say, well, what do you think about this in Pachamotanasana? And people are like, oh, yeah, well, that's good. And it, it actually, it doesn't make sense. Because what we want in our forward bends is not just to stretch the back body. What we want is to find some sheltering. We want some quiet. We want some surrender. We want some softening. We want some yield. We want some tempering of the nervous system. And that's not going to happen as readily if we're fighting to get another millimeter of length through the anterior spine. So I, I want to qualify this one more time, even though I've already said it, which is when people are tighter, they have no business rounding their back because when they round their back, they're going to tilt their pelvis backward over the femurs and it's going to stress the lumbar. But if you have a decent forward bend, if you can reach forward and hold your feet, like get good hold of feet, Yes, you want to lengthen your spine, but at the end, once you've lengthened your spine as much as it's going to lengthen, then allow a little bit of softening, allow a little bit of yielding, let the head drop, tuck in a little bit, because at that angle, you're not going to rotate the pelvis back over the femurs. Right. It's already rotated forward. It's already forward, yeah. Yes. I learned that a little bit too late after I had a hamstring injury. So yes, yes. I test that that's a very good 
approach? Yeah. So most of the, the conversation was around more effective strengthening, right? Making sure we balance all this forward bend with a little bit more back body strength, lift higher in your Ardha Uttanasanas, wake up the rotational muscles of spine and core in your lunging standing poses, do more prone back bends. Those are really oriented towards spinal strength. But this last one is at some point, let go of fighting more and let yourself sort of relax into the, the softness of a seated forward bend. Make it feel like child's pose. Great. Great. Thanks, Jason. You're welcome. Thanks for <laughs> having me on your podcast. <laughs> we'll see what people think of you. <laughs> let us know in the comments. Don't. <laughs> Hello, Andrea. Hi. The tables have turned. Yes. I'm the interviewer. I'm ready. You feel good about this? I'm ready, yeah. So we're talking about a tip. We're going to have you give a tip or a little bit of a thought. Mm -hmm. And I have a question for you. This is from an observation, which is you have done a remarkable job over the past couple of years with minimizing your sweet tooth. Mm -hmm. I don't even know if when we go to the restaurant, you ask to see the dessert menu. Yeah, actually you do. Not most of the time I do not. Okay. No. Anyways. That's my tip. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, next week. you should bring that up. Yeah. No, but uh, you really have really significantly reduced your sugar intake until we had that box of um, dark chocolate peanut butter cups oh given to gosh. us. Oh my gosh. You cannot even put that on me. Dude. No, you I know. You ate like 95% you know of those. Sorry. All right. So anyways, moving on. <laughs> you have really reduced your sugar intake. Yep. And I want to know, how have you done it? Uh, are you like white knuckling through it? No. Is there strategy? And yeah. what's up? Yes. Yeah, it's been a couple years that I've been working to reduce it. And I go through phases where sometimes I adhere to it better than others. I have gone through phases where I have had absolutely no refined sugar and I'm not quite there anymore. When you face say, phases, you mean like six minute periods of time? <laughs> exactly. <laughs> <laughs> no, but my, but my approach now is like, I try to be as reasonable as possible while sticking to, you know, my goal. I had just happened to think for my body and for what I've been through and for my age that the less sweeteners and especially refined sugar I have, the better. I do feel better as well. So my tip, I have so many tips. And in fact, I have a whole blog post about it, which is a few years old, and I should update it. Can you link it to this? Yeah, I'll okay. link to it in the show notes. And I will, depending on what people think, I might even just do a whole episode about okay. sugar. But there's a couple things that come to mind. The first thing that comes to mind is that I think that it is so much easier to think about creating a good habit rather than getting rid of a bad habit, mm. right? So it's just perception, but instead of thinking- It's of, not just perception. Yeah, instead of thinking like, oh my God, I can't have sugar. I can't have my favorite thing. I can't look at the dessert menu at the restaurant. I try to think of my food as just nourishing myself. So I just, that's just how I approach all of it now. It's just mm. like, and what is nourishing to me? Nourishing is if I feel satisfied after a meal- so satiety is a, is a big deal. And um, if it tastes really good, you know? Yeah. So 
that's like a really broad stroke, but that's just how I approach everything. Like I don't try to think of it as lack. I try to think of it as gaining something else. Yeah. Gaining something else. It's making me think the first time I heard the concept of food as medicine, Mm -hmm. you know, having grown up in the Midwest, like a straight up Midwesterner, I just thought this was literally the most absurd statement ever, my right? Little cynic. Oh my yeah. God, right? I have downgraded from a pure cynic to skeptical. Yeah, right? that's yeah, true. Totally. That's... But now I totally get it. Now I totally, totally get it. So you talking about it as nourishment, I think makes even more sense to me than thinking about it as medicine mm-hmm. in, in terms of how I relate to the language. Yeah. Yeah. I like it too. It just sounds cozier. Yeah, it is. <laughs> Okay. And then I guess another thing I would say is that change occurs gradually. And so give yourself time, like give yourself, you know, I'm thinking actually of Susan Cain talking about introverts and she says, give introverts a long runway to warm up. Give yourself a long runway to implement major change in your diet. You don't have to do everything you don't have to go on one of those 21 day programs where you're not allowed to ever have X, Y, or Z. You can slowly implement things and see how that goes for you. Totally. I'm, I'm thinking a little contrarian for a moment. Sure. That sometimes in some situations we need a massive kick in the pants. Yeah. And, and, but maybe that isn't, maybe that isn't sustainable. I mean, I feel That's like. That's the thing. That's the thing. You have to make it sustainable. Like I did the kick in the pants. I yeah. did the no sugar yeah. for, yeah, I think yeah, I yeah. did it for a couple months. Yeah. And then it was like, how many Fridays can I go out with all the moms and my daughter where every single person is having ice cream and I don't have a single bite? I couldn't do it. It just, it just was like taking some pleasure out of my life. So I aim to whatever I'm focusing on in my nutritional profile, I aim to get it right 80 80 to 90% of the time. Right. That's good. I'll take a B plus. It's a fairly high bar. I was sort of at best a B plus kind of guy. Yeah, me too. I was B plus, A minus. (laughs) Totally. Yeah. I'll take B plus. Yeah. When you really say to yourself, like, I am going to get it right 80 to 90% of the time, I'm going to. That's a lot. That's a lot to commit to. It is. And then in the days when someone hands you a piece of cake, like at a birthday party, this happened to me the (laughs) other day. Did this happen recently? It did. (laughs) And I was like, oh, I feel so bad just saying no to this piece of cake. I'm just going to have a bite. Then you're not feeling like A, a failure. Oh, I should give up everything. I can never do this. You know, you don't have all of that negative feedback when you've already allowed for the possibility of a little bit of wiggle room. You have to have wiggle room. I believe you do. Well, yeah. I believe you do. I'm sure that there are exceptions to the rule where some people have sort of an addictive and extreme enough personality type that you have to be black and white about something. Sure. But probably for most people, having a little bit of wiggle room is the is the way to go. I think if you want to think about it long term, long haul sustainability, that's what's worked for me so far. Gary Taubes is actually he's a New York Times writer and bestselling author. And he writes about sugar and he is an absolute no sugar kind of guy because of what happens to the brain and everything like that. And the addiction kind of mechanisms. But I find that I adhere really, really well to a very tiny amount of refined sugar with this way of doing it. And if you want to know, you know, the World Health Organization has recommendations for daily sugar intake. And it's like not six teaspoons for a woman. And I think seven for a man. And that may sound like a lot, but it's 25 grams. So if you look at your 
RX bar or your kind bar or your whatever, you've probably gotten it just in that. Yeah. And you add some honey into your tea or some, you know, other things like that. And usually I do eat just like tablespoons of sugar. I know. I, I've noticed that. Yeah. The pixie it? sticks. I have to stop eating pixie sticks. We might want to work on that. I don't eat pixie sticks, nor do I eat sugar like that. <laughs> you don't lick it off the I table. Mean, I've gotten really good, except for, you know, it always throws me off that the hardest things that throw me off of sugar, uh, throw me back into sugar, travel. Mm, which yes. is a time that I try and lock it down. But travel's hard because especially with travel far away where I get jet lag, like those of you that travel a lot, you know what jet lag hunger is. Where you wake up in the middle of the night, it feels like you've been eaten in 30 days, yeah. right? So for me snacking when I travel and when I teach for long periods where I need that quick carbohydrate because I'm losing, I have so much focus, I'm losing blood sugar and I need to replenish it quickly. Mm -hmm. That's a struggle for me. Yeah, those are the two things, travel and teaching. I mean, almost always those go hand in hand. But also that's when that's when I do my best to double down and say, nope, I got to nip this in the bud. I got to make sure that I have really good, healthy protein and fat snacks so that I don't go into that well because I because I know the likelihood is there. Yeah. I know the situation is such that it's going to be really hard for me to not overindulge sugar. And so I, I need to be prepared. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, anything that takes you out of your routine definitely can potentially pull you off of your, your sort of nutrition plan. That's why actually the 80 to 90% rule yeah. is helpful there too. Yeah. Yeah. Cause you can just allow for the fact that like we do travel, we do have weird blood sugar moments. We do have just those moments of getting sucked in. Yeah. And another thing to do for those travel moments is, and I think that you already do this, or really you can do this anytime, is once you identify a trigger, like a trigger meal or a trigger situation or a trigger snack, you can create something for yourself that's just a healthier alternative. I know that sounds really basic, but just being as prepared as possible yeah. is really what will keep you on track, keep you satisfied, keep you nourished. And that's really, that's always what I'm aiming nice. for. Thank yep. you. Sure. Thanks for listening. I will look for your stories and your beautiful faces with the hashtag YogalandStories on Instagram. Show notes for this episode can be found at yogalandpodcast.com slash episode 56. And until next week, enjoy your practice.